The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. I love the evening soft refrain The way it bids the day farewell The humming of a quiet train The calmness of his gentle spell Deanne Arbus was a renowned photographer who changed our view of acceptable subject matter with, at the time, shocking and emotionally riveting photographs of people considered to be on the fringes of society, or as she called them, freaks in quite ordinary places, as well as moving photography into the world of art. Welcome to Personology. I'm Dr. Gail Saltz, and joining me today is Arthur Lubau, a journalist who has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and Vanity Fair. He is the author of Deanne Arbus, Portrait of a Photographer. Born in March 1923 as Diane Nemiroff to David Nemiroff and Gertrude Rusek Nemiroff, a Jewish couple and immigrants from Russia. They lived in New York City and owned a Fifth Avenue department store that sold furs and other women's clothing called Rusek's, which was started by Gertrude's family. Their family, as a result, was well-to-do. To put it simply, Deanne hated her background. Uh, She viewed it all as a horrible imposition, in a way, on her. Uh, She thought her mother was completely fake, that she aspired to a kind of upper-class dignity and glamour that Deanne rejected as being false. And the fashion business itself, she once said, required you to have a fake front because if you showed any sign of weakness, it was all over. And of course, fashion is in a way a pretense. But the interesting thing, just as an aside, is that Deanne remained fascinated by and knowledgeable of fashion throughout her career, her life. And she would talk about it in a way that people less knowledgeable would would find impressive. And she herself was always fashion forward and she dressed very well. So began this whole arena, let's say, of authentic versus inauthentic, wearing a mask or covering up, which to some degree she considered right fashion and her mother very much wearing this fake mask versus being a secret revealing, being intimate, being real and authentic. These two poles were 
a theme that started in her young childhood and really remained throughout her entire life as very important and ultimately very important in her artwork. Yes, and it's important to mention as well that her mother was a depressive. She basically stayed in bed a lot, right? She didn't. Well, she did stay in bed till about noon, and then she would make herself up, and then she would go out to lunch. But yes, what you said before is very true and and, and very uh, significant in Arbus's career. One of the things that fascinated her was the donning of a mask, and in particular in a photograph showing the gap between what she called the intention and the effect, so that you would be able to see, say, in a um, female impersonator, the hairline where the wig met the forehead. Or you could, in many cases, see that a person was trying to be something that he or she was not. She felt that her family, certainly her mother, And even she was being forced to be something that she was not. That internally, she wasn't really this wealthy daughter of this wealthy family with this mother who appeared to be playing the mommy role, but in fact was absent, really because she suffered depression, recurrent depression, and was therefore literally emotionally as well as actually not around, you know, in her room, not interacting with her daughter. Alternatively, the father, who seemed more emotionally available in certain ways and that he didn't suffer constantly from depression, was very consumed with his business. It's always difficult, as you well know, to speculate on what causes a person's psychological lacks or issues or whatever word you want to use. Deanne felt throughout her life that she was somehow not real and had this need to find in other people a reflection that would prove her own reality. And I I think that it started in some way in her childhood. Was it her mother's periodic absences, if if you will, um, psychological absences? Was it that her father, she was his favorite, and yet he wasn't there really? And she knew, because she had an older brother, Howard, she knew that her father, David Nemirov, could, if he wished, become extremely chilly and freeze out Howard in particular if Howard did something that he found unacceptable. I think it's important for people to understand that, first of all, Deanne had what I would call genetic loading. In other words, she had a mother, a first-degree relative with recurrent major depression, I mean, significant depression, and that is likely to prime their offspring, if you will, to be biologically more likely to have depression as well. But she also suffered the trauma of having a depressed mother. And when your primary caretaker is really emotionally unavailable for you, even though not of her own making, it is traumatic because it's a kind of neglect, a kind of emotional neglect. And the father, as you pointed out, you know, he, on the other hand, may have been more emotionally available, but ambition was important to him. Making money was important to him. Appearing successful was important to him. And he wanted his children essentially to do the same as an extension of himself, you know, to be also highly successful. She had two siblings, Howard, who was older, and Renee, who was younger. And Howard, as the first boy, was incredibly bright, was an excellent student. But as you said, if he didn't do the things that the father wanted to do, she had an example of what could happen emotionally to you. You're right in distinguishing between the expectations of the son and the daughters. David Nemirov wanted Howard to go into the family business, and Howard refused. He did go to Harvard, so that was good. But he was going to be a poet, which was not so good. And he became a very successful poet. Became a poet laureate. Yeah, I mean, exactly. he reached the pinnacle of his field. <laughs> yeah, he became a very successful poet. Although he himself always admitted that Deanne was by far the more creative and original of the two. And the third sibling, Renee, was something of a, um, an outsider. Whereas Deanne was very bonded in all sorts of ways with Howard, she eventually distanced herself from Renee. Well, let's talk about those relationships and that bond. There seems to be a lot of historical speak of Howard and Deanne being very, very close. What do you make of this discussion that, in fact, she had a sexual relationship with Howard from a young age and really up until close to her death? Deanne told people, friends, and then later her psychiatrist, that 
she had started having sex with Howard as a young teenager when their parents were out of the apartment, and that the relationship continued right up until her death. Deanne was extremely sexually, and maybe as a result of this, we don't really know, she was very sexually forward as a young teenage girl. To what extent Howard's sexual activity with her created the conditions that produced that attitude, we don't know. But it is true that Deanne required the attention of other people to get a sense of her own actual being. So she found it very difficult when a man with whom she was involved moved away from her. Even when she had several men at once and she was married, she still found this extremely painful and talked about the dissolution of herself in the wake of the ends of these affairs. So sexual play between siblings is something that is not that unusual. Exactly. And probably for that time, particularly when parents maybe were less concerned or attentive or intervening, certainly parents as absent as these wouldn't be unusual. But sexual intercourse would definitely be unusual. Yeah. And certainly something that continued definitely if it were particularly when they not only become adults, but become involved with other people, would be very unusual. Well, there was something important, perhaps, for Deanne, and it, it, we see this in other ways, of her having the power to seduce and keep. And the keeping part in intimacy seems to be a recurrent theme, who she could share her secrets or have a secret with and know their secrets. That was incredibly important to her. Yeah, she was fascinated by secrets. And she emphasized how good she was at finding out people's secrets. And she was parsimonious in doling out her own. So, yes, I think this was a secret between Deanne and Howard. Howard also, it's worth noting, became a terrible alcoholic. And it's also worth noting that his wife said that Deanne was Howard's idea of the perfect woman. Deanne met Alan Arbus when she was 13 years old. He was five years older. The funny thing about it was that Alan had gone to work at Russick's as a penniless but bright young man. And when he and Deanne became romantically interested in each other, Deanne's parents, Gertrude and David, were horrified. But what's funny about it, in a way, is that the same thing had happened with Gertrude and David, because David had been a penniless man who'd gone to work at Russick's, So now Deanne was, in a way, repeating her mother's action and choice in choosing Alan. And it horrified her parents, who really tried to break it up, but were unsuccessful. And actually, had Deanne understood at the time that it was a repetition, she may not have been as interested in Alan, but it sounds like that was not on her radar in terms of, you know, why she might be choosing him. The idea that she would be her mother in some way, right, terrified her. Horrified her, I would say. Yes, horrified her. (laughs) And so the wish to keep unconscious that she was being like her mother would be pretty powerful, the, the power to deny that to herself. So in a way, not surprising. But this relationship, even though, you know, here she is at Fieldston, I'm sure it would be anticipated by her family and by her teachers that she would go to college, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And in fact, she stays involved. And Really, upon graduation, essentially, they get married. It shocked her classmates because she was such a smart student that she wasn't going on to college. They all went to college. I mean, they were they, these were upper middle class, in many cases, quite wealthy Jewish kids. They were expected to go to college. That's true today. Yes. At Fieldston, it would be unheard of for yeah. any, anyone graduating there to not be going to college. Yeah. So it amazed and, and I'd say shocked her friends when she said, no, she's going to become Mrs. Allen Arbus. So she decides she's going to be Mrs. Allen Arbus. And of course, they don't have any money, but the father says, okay, you, Allen, can take photos and sort of become the fashion photographer for the store. It was because he liked taking pictures that David Nemar very generously said that he would help him set up a studio and he would give him work. You know, back then, there was no art photography market. So if you wanted to be a photographer, you needed to do fashion work or advertising work of some sort, or else, and Deanne later did, magazine work. So 
at this time, they were doing fashion work, and they did set up a studio. It's interrupted by Alan going off to the war, because this is right at the time that America enters the Second World War, and then he comes back, and then they're really in business together. Alan operated the camera, and Deanne was the stylist, which was a two-part job, really. One was coming up with the concept of the picture, which was, in a way, the creative work. And the second, which Alan later told me was quite humiliating for her, was arranging the skirt and doing various things to make sure that the model looked good. Sort of the work equivalent of housekeeping. It was very much a gendered role, I would say. The man operated the equipment, and the women, the models were almost all women, so took care of their dresses. It wasn't really totally driven by Alan in the sense that ultimately he ends up being in some ways her biggest supporter in terms of starting her artistic career, but it was sort of the cultural division of labor and the father supporting Alan being the lead on this. Yes, and they already had a daughter. They would later have a second daughter. Alan was a good father, but still the mother had a primary role and and Deanne played that role really to the hilt. I mean, she was, she was an extremely devoted mother. She at least never expressed any real ambivalence about. But the other role, yes. Being a stylist eventually did come to appall her. Because remember, she had rejected her mother's, and father's too, devotion to fashion and the fakeness of it. And now she was doing that. Now this was her career. She was spending much of her day helping to create these illusions. And it began to drive her crazy. She's really conflicted about the role, frankly, of just of being a woman. What does it mean to be a woman? In some ways, she talked often about the most important and sort of greatest moments of her life being childbirth and menstruation. She talked often of those two topics. But those were two ways in which she could verify her physical reality, both the pain of childbirth and the physical evidence of menstruation. And of course, those are very female things. I've never thought that she was taking pride in being a woman. It was that she was taking satisfaction in these physical manifestations or or, or feelings that were intense enough that they would register. As a psychoanalyst, I would say evidence that you have to procreate to you know make life, those things resonated for her she appreciated that power of femininity. The other part, the trappings of I arrange the skirts, I vacuum the house, those felt demeaning to her, not the opposite of being powerful, but they were the two sides of being a woman. At this juncture, she is not taking pictures. She is not involved in the photography end of things. They together as a team, I guess I would say, are being successful. They're getting shoots in Vogue and Glamour and high-end fashion magazines. And there is something about her eye that Alan reports in terms of those photographs also being very sellable. Deanne came up with the concepts. So the concept is the essential part of a fashion photograph. The mechanics of it, many people can do. I mean, Alan was proficient, but he wasn't particularly uh, creative. Deanne was the creative one. And so he recognized this from the beginning. You know, and Deanne was taking pictures. They took a sabbatical in Europe for a year, and she took a number of pictures. And already she had a distinctive way of looking at things. Part of understanding the psyche of Deanne Arbus is understanding the expectations of the role of women in the 1950s, which was to be exclusively a homemaker and mother. For a woman who wanted to be a career artist, it was particularly challenging to raise a child and be true to your creative instincts and aspirations. A conflict that many women still struggle with, it was even more of a struggle for Deanne Arbus in the 1950s. She, by report, really was a good mother. I mean, she was close to her, both of her daughters. If anything, she was too attentive. If anything, she didn't have enough boundaries, especially with the older daughter. Alan told me that the counselor at the younger daughter's camp would read Deanne's letters to Amy, as the name of the younger daughter, and he'd never read such letters. And I've read some of them, and yeah, they're amazing letters. Lack of boundaries is a really important theme in her life, that she went back and forth in terms of creating walls and at the same time having difficulty having any boundaries at all. She clearly loved her husband, Alan, but she had difficulty remaining faithful. It wasn't even clear to me whether being monogamous was something that mattered to either of them. No, it wasn't. 
Not sexually faithful, but emotionally faithful, yes. These were very different things to them. Yes. Being emotionally faithful to one another, which he remained even after they they separated and divorced. He did, but he fell in love with another woman, and that was a very big problem for Deanne. That was the betrayal, not a sexual betrayal. That's correct. In the 1950s, having sex with other people was not too typical of any marriage. In this circle, it was. In this artistic New York circle, yes. People, especially men, but women too, had had affairs while they were married. I'm I'm not sure that it's so different then from now. It's just maybe uh, people talk about it more. Yeah, there was this fake front that we're talking about. And Deanne, part of her trying to transgress boundaries was this urge not to be fake. When Alan fell in love with a woman, her name is Zora Lampert, she would become a well-known actress. Um, She was a very talented actress. And Alan was studying to be an actor because it was his lifelong ambition, yes. He really wanted to be an actor. Yes, not a photographer. And Deanne was okay with it. She could deal with Alan being in love with Zora. What the problem became was that Zora could not accept that Alan was involved with her and with Deanne at the same time. And it was Zora who said that you'll have to leave Deanne if you want to remain with me. And that was devastating to Deanne because Alan did choose to move out so that he could be with Zora. But Zora told me that before this happened, once at a party, to her horror, really, Deanne showed up with Alan uh, because she wanted to meet Zora and she was as nice as could be, but she intimidated Zora because uh, getting back to fashion, she was so beautifully dressed and expensively dressed in a way that Zora, who was then a struggling actress, could never have afforded. She wanted to meet her and was very nice to her, but clearly there was some competitive, like, I'm the one. So let's not forget that. So Zora thought, yes. Let's take a quick break here. Be right back. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the wind-down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. 
refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all. Even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Let's talk about the moment when really... Um, I mean, she had been involved certainly in the in the arranging and the creating of these fashion photos. At what point did she decide, I really can't do this anymore? This is not creative. This is not who I want to be. And at what point did Alan support her in making this 180-degree guitar? There's a very dramatic moment where there were just three people in the studio, Deanne Allen and a friend of theirs, Robert Brown, who told me about it. And then Alan also talked about it with me, um, where Deanne just suddenly said at the end of a session with a model, I can't do this anymore. It was shocking to both of the men in the room because I think her dissatisfaction was not a secret, but this break seemed like a real break. And she quit. They were no longer working together. And Deanne was going out on her own with a 35 millimeter camera at first, to photograph in the way that New York street photographers did back then. She went to Coney Island. She uh, eventually went to a sideshow on 42nd Street. She went on 57th Street to photograph people who were passing by. She became a street photographer, which there were a number of in New York at that time. There's one extremely moving story, at least to me, that Alan's assistant told me of, of one day Alan came back to the studio and asked where Deanne's prints were. The assistant said, well, I haven't done them yet because I'm still doing our work from the fashion studio. And Alan said, you've got to remember Deanne's work is the most important work that goes on here. So he definitely did, as he had really from the beginning, understand that Deanne was a very talented and creative person in a way that he was not, and in a way that, you know, really, in fairness, a <laughs> few people are. So he did support her, and he told me that, in a way, it was their separation that allowed her to do what she did, because he would never, if, if they'd been living together, permitted her to go to some of the risky places that she wound up going to take her pictures. So it's important to realize that intermittently she is having periods of depression, of real depression, and periods not, but that her choice to, motivated obviously by her artistic passion, to go to places that were dangerous and put herself potentially in harm's way does seem really self-destructive. She took sexual risks. She took physical risks in setting up relationships with potential people she would photograph, in having photographic sessions, and she maintained these relationships. She got involved sexually with many of her subjects. There was something thrilling, obviously, for her, but also the risk which I would argue seemed important and maybe self-destructive potentially may have been spurred on by, you know, whatever feelings associated with depression, you know, guilt, self-defeat in some ways, but it was exhilarating for her at the same time. It was definitely exhilarating. I myself don't view the risk-taking of her work as self-destructive any more than you would say a war photographer was being self-destructive by putting himself or herself at risk. But it is certainly true that she derived a, a more or less sexual thrill from these encounters, even if they didn't involve sex. I would argue a sexual, a masochistic sexual thrill. Maybe. I mean, she, she once said that going into somebody's apartment was a little bit like going for a sexual encounter with a man and then seeing his wife's slippers in the room, and that might be masochistic. But it also gave her a sense, and I think you said this earlier, of her own power, that she was able, in the same way that, that seducing men gave her a sense of her own power and her own, I keep getting back to this, her own reality. And also getting back to what we were saying before, it was a repudiation of the world that her 
parents had aspired to. So instead of trying to move up, she was looking at what was going on down. And she told a story to Studs Terkel, who interviewed her for a book he was doing on the Depression, that when she went to see the Hooverville in Central Park, the place where homeless people were living in the, the height of the Depression, she found it that there was some kind of thrilling fascination that she had for this world that was barred to her, that had a kind of underworld that didn't exist in her uh, very cosseted and restricted upbringing. And she wanted in. She photographed sideshow, quote, freaks, which they called themselves. Correct. Outliers, circus people, nudists, transvestites, which at the time were certainly considered to be very much outsiders. She also photographed families, middle-class families, women and children. I just want a, a quote from her. Freaks was a thing I photographed a lot. There's a quality of legend about freaks, like a person in a fairy tale who stops you and demands that you answer a riddle. Most people go through life dreading they'll have a traumatic experience. Freaks were born with their trauma. They've already passed their test in life. They're aristocrats. For her, this is the opposite of where she came from, and it's where she wanted to be, and it's inside of her, and she's taking pictures of it. Yeah, there's so much that can be said about her interest in sideshow freaks. For one thing, as you say, they were performers. She never photographed people who were deformed by burns. She did think that they had somehow experienced something or done something more intense than she had herself, and they'd survived it. And this intensity of experience, we keep getting back to because it's what she was looking for. And this um, ability to feel something strongly enough, like childbirth, that her, her sense of her own self would be reaffirmed. Let's talk about some of the photographs because you talked to some of the subjects of these photographs and sometimes they didn't even recognize themselves or that's not how they thought they looked. There was something that she clearly brought out or imbued into this photograph in some unusual and creative way that even the people involved didn't necessarily recognize. But she also spent time developing some sort of relationship or making something happen in the moment that she would then capture, that she wanted to capture, whether she evoked that by having sex with the person or, or speaking with them or evolving their relationship. She had different techniques for accomplishing what she always wanted to do, which was to get people to drop their mask. She wanted to see what was lying under their public facade. So sometimes she would just exhaust them. A shoot could go on for hours until the person that she was photographing couldn't maintain that pose anymore. You can argue that that expression of weariness is maybe not entirely the accurate person that she was seeing, but it did have a force that a smiling picture didn't have. One of Deanne's most famous portraits is called Child with Toy Hand Grenade in Central Park. In it, a young boy stands in a strained and awkward pose with one of the suspenders of his shorts falling off his shoulder. His face is pulled back into a grimace and his hands are clenched, the right one around a realistic looking toy hand grenade. Colin Wood, the boy with the toy grenade, the man now obviously, he didn't remember the actual session, but he remembered what was going on in his life because his parents had separated and he was living basically on sugar. And so he was a very, he's still actually a pretty hyper person, but, but he was very hyper back then. But if you look at the contact sheet of the, of the various pictures that she took of Colin, He's clowning, but in this one, he's grimacing and looks like he's in pain. And that's, of course, the one that she took, and it's a great photograph. It became a kind of an icon. Who knows how that happened? She found him is, I think, the main thing that was going on in that picture. She saw this boy in Central Park, and she knew that she wanted to photograph him because there was something she said that reminded him of herself. Was that true of many of her photographs, that she saw something in her subjects or waited for the something that reminded her of herself? Of herself or of somebody who was close to her. So sometimes there were women on the street that were, would remind her of her grandmother. 
who she said was rather vulgar but superb, like a witch. And so there are a number of older women, normal middle-class women, that she would stop and she would photograph and they would look not normal. One of the things that's said about Arbus is that she made freaks seem like everyday people and everyday people look like freaks. A great example, the photo of the, quote, Jewish giant with his parents who are are dwarfed by him standing in the room. They're a family, but they're a family in turmoil. They're a family in conflict. You would think these would be parents that would be sympathetic and empathetic toward their son who, you know, is living with this essentially deformity. But she's captured something else. Yes. Now, the, the Jewish giant is somebody that she knew, Eddie Carmel, his name was, She'd known him for a long time. So this was a relationship that had culminated in this photograph, but there's a lot under the iceberg before you see the tip. Eddie had um, acromegaly. I mean, he had a a form of giantism that would eventually kill him. It's unclear how tall he was, but he was, let's say, roughly seven feet tall. And he worked in sideshows, which horrified his father, who was a very proper middle-class Jewish man who wanted to go back to Israel, where they had come from. They'd come to take care of the mother's uh, relative who then died, but they, they couldn't leave because of Eddie. So the father was angered by Eddie and by his choosing to be in sideshows, to try to make a career as a freak, basically. The mother was caught in the middle between her son and her husband. So in the picture, you see the father looking angry, the mother looking helpless, and Eddie can barely fit in the space of this low-ceiling department. I mean, all, all the details in that picture are amazing. The furniture, and again, she doesn't stage this. She just finds it and sees it. She's looking at a family because she's really interested in families, and she's seeing a dynamic in the family. And if she's anyone, of course, she would be Eddie because she's a, a child who's not understood by his parents. She feels like a freak in many ways. Yes, you don't see tremendous love between the parent and the child in this in this photo. And yet the freak is dwarfing his parents, right? These kinds of issues, I guess I'll say, some certainly do smack of her family of origin that she wanted to and and, when he, and did dwarf her parents, right? But tell us what photographs did she talk about? This really, this is me, I'm in here. Well, the classic one is is a picture of a Westchester family on a Sunday afternoon. And she she found a woman who was a friend of a friend of hers. Uh, Deanne was having lunch with this woman. They went to a bookstore, and the friend greeted this very made-up, beautiful, blonde woman who reminded Deanne of her own mother in her attention to fashion. And I've got to say, I interviewed this woman many years later, and she could still remember what she was wearing when she met Deanne. So she was very interested in fashion. The woman suggested to Deanne that Deanne might want to come out to their house in the summer. They had a swimming pool. So Deanne did. She took many photographs. But the one that she kept and printed and has become famous shows the two parents on Cheslong on a lawn. Deanne had decided she didn't want the swimming pool in the picture. And I think that's telling because she didn't want this to be a picture about uh, American upper middle class uh, suburban life. She wanted it to be something more mythic, as she was saying about, uh, you know, other pictures and and more uh, universal. In the background, there's a little boy. You can't see quite what he's doing, but he's involved in his own activity. What he's actually doing is feeding his uh, toy duck in an inflatable pool, but you don't see the duck. I just know this because I talked to, again, he's not, not a boy anymore, the man now. And Deanne said it was a family like her own family. She also said that it was as if the parents were dreaming the boy and the boy was inventing the parents, uh, which I think is also something to do <laughs> with the way she saw her family. But it's positioned as an Oedipal triangle also because the boy is the apex and the two parents are side by side. The man looks angry. He's got his face covered with his arm. The woman looks bored and beautiful. And the child is in his own world. And I think that is, I mean, she said so. This was how Deanne saw her own childhood. 
when she took that picture and when she saw it actually later, because in fact, there's a gap. She, she was ill with hepatitis when she took that picture and then she just collapsed. But then she printed the negatives and she was thrilled with that picture. Let's pause for a break here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules Day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. So she goes through sort of these phases, stages. She goes to these areas where transvestites are. Uh, She goes to these circus shows. She nurtures certain relationships to get certain shots. And by the way, she she is being recognized for her work. I mean, even, I mean, it's not that it took her to die to be recognized. She was definitely recognized in her lifetime. People who knew anything about photography um, very much admired what she was doing. So she's interacting with also successful photographers. Yes. Not that any of them are making a lot of money. And in fact, she was really, was financially struggling. Yes. As they all were. Because, you know, a museum would pay an enormous amount for a painting, but pay $100 for a (laughs) photograph because it wasn't recognized in that way. So she is being recognized, but she's still continuing to look for new subject matter and push her envelope, as it were. At some point, she is taking photographs of mentally disabled people, homes for women who were mentally disabled And she took a number of photographs there. Then became this question in terms of her ethics. Did she get consent from people? Did she get consent from people who were capable of giving consent? And, you know, did she cross a line in terms of being an ethical artist? At the end of her career and her life, she did go out to New Jersey and photograph these developmentally disabled women. She did not get consent 
first of all, they weren't capable of giving consent so that she would have had to get it from the guardians. Uh, you couldn't do this kind of work today. She'd never be allowed to um, wander around. So the ethics of it, you know, I don't know. People talk about this issue sometimes in regard to the developmentally disabled people, sometimes the, the question of whether she was somehow ridiculing or, you know, making fun of the people that she photographed. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that that is not true of the developmentally disabled people. She would say often that she loved them. And I don't, looking at those pictures, see anything other than affection and admiration, really, because what's so distinctive about those pictures is that she sought out the women who looked happy. She wasn't interested in photographing, you know, normally when people, Richard Avedon had done this earlier, when they go to these places, they're looking for signs of misery and degradation. She was, and I'm sure they were there, that was not her intent and it's not what she photographed. She was looking for people who, despite suffering from these really grievous disabilities, were happy. That was a big theme for her at that stage in her life because she was really not happy and wondered how it was that people could be happy and, you know, would talk about this uh, because it was such a pressing issue for herself. The other pictures, the earlier ones of freaks, for instance, or, or of, of people that, you know, so-called normals who, who she makes look freakish, there is an element of cruelty in these pictures for sure. And I think part of what makes people uncomfortable when they see them today is that they don't know how to feel about them because they're not simple pictures. And her attitude towards these people is, or, was not simple. On the one hand, she identified with them. On the other hand, she did find them ridiculous and in, in a way that she found aspects of her own self ridiculous. That ambivalence which characterizes these pictures of both affection and mockery, I think, is... What she was after. It is, and it's why other people can't take pictures like this, because they don't have that complexity. She said, A photograph is a secret about a secret. The more it tells you, the less you know. I mean, that is a complicated statement right there, but the mystery of it and the not knowing was just as important to her in, in terms of what she was communicating with these photos. The kind of photograph she took particularly was first recording something shared between the photographer and the subject. So in a, in a way, that was a secret. But then you have the picture and the viewer of the picture who is him or herself looking at this picture and sharing something with it. So it is a dual secret. You are communing with something on the wall or in a book. And in turn, that was a communion between the subject and the photographer. Meanwhile, she continues to have these bouts of, it seems, ever-worsening depression. Alan has not only separated, but as you said, emotionally left her. He's literally moved to the West Coast, which was devastating for her, to be with somebody else. She becomes involved, as you mentioned earlier, with Marvin Israel, a very highly successful, really, artist. but one who developed other artists, and he is incredibly supportive of her work and, and, in fact, formative in terms of talking with her about her work and what she should be doing or could be doing. She is sexually involved with him, but he is married. He will not leave his wife, and this is very difficult for her because he's essentially not really available, even though he's in and out. Yes. These two most important men in her life, Alan Arbus and Marvin Israel, are in a way opposite poles. Um, Alan doesn't really divorce himself emotionally from Deanne. In fact, their closeness continues right up until her death. Marvin, whom she was involved with for 10 years, is a much different kind of person. He's pushing her to transgress, actually. And as you say, he, he was married to another psychologically fragile artist who also had periods of, of not leaving the house. So Marvin's first allegiance was to Margie, his wife, and this became increasingly painful for Dion because, as you say, he was not available to her when she felt that she needed him, and she, and she became needier and needier. And in addition, some sort of relationship went on between her daughter, Dune, and Marvin Israel. Yes. So, again, we don't know precisely how that 
affected Deanne. It seems at least plausible to me that Deanne was involved in engineering this relationship. But friends of Deanne's told me that they felt that even if she had helped engineer this relationship... A sexual relationship. A sexual relationship between her lover and her daughter, that it proved to be much more painful to her than she might have anticipated, in the way that she wouldn't have anticipated the pain that would be caused by Alan's departure to Los Angeles. And she was a woman in her late 40s. She'd had two serious bouts with hepatitis. She was definitely looking older. She was always somebody who looked quite young. As in, the power to seduce, in her mind at least, may have been being diminished by these physical frailties as evidenced, perhaps, to her of Alan moving to California and Marvin staying at the end of the day with his wife and even being willing to get sexually involved with the daughter, who would be then just a younger version of Dionne. But I think it was more that she just knew that she was not his first priority. That is what aided her, that there was another woman who took precedence over her Richard Avedon had a big show in in Minneapolis, and um, Marvin, who was very close to Avedon, designed the show. Margie didn't go with Marvin for that opening, so he went with Deanne. So she was, for once, like the wife. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could spend the night together. They, you know, they could share, you know, a, a hotel room. And it was after that, coming back to New York, and once again being the... The other woman. The other woman, yeah, that launched her long and final depression. Her final depression, obviously a severe depression. It seemed almost as though she were actually even no longer excited about taking photographs. I mean, that her work wasn't stimulating her. These relationships or lack thereof certainly also impacting her mood. She was aware and expressed being aware that Ending her life would raise her profile, would probably raise the value of her work. There was this vicious circle. She was depressed. She could no longer photograph people who were looking back at her. And she had taken strength from that reciprocal gaze. So as she got more depressed, she was photographing People like those developmentally disabled women who did look back at her, but it was not the kind of look that you could get sustenance from. She became interested in photographing perhaps sleeping people. She photographed blind people. It's fascinating to me to see that she was looking for subjects that couldn't look back at her at this point. She did a a photograph of an empty movie theater. So she had done something at the very beginning of her career when she quit the fashion business, also photographing newspapers blowing down the street. And now she'd returned to that desolation. Right around this time, Art Forum put her on the cover. They'd never done anything on a photographer before at all, and they put her on the cover of the magazine. And at the same time, the curator of the American Pavilion in in Venice, at the Venice Biennale, and he wanted to include Deanne in that exhibition, which had not been done with a photographer before. And... All of this made her extremely anxious. She complained about this also to her psychiatrist, you know, that that people want things from her that she can't give them. So this death by suicide was not a gesture. This was planned when no one would be around, when no one would find her. She marks in her journal a reference to her last supper and takes barbiturates, slits her wrists, gets in a bathtub, and is not found for two days. Marvin is the one who discovered the body, and she knew that Marvin would discover the body because he had a key to her um, apartment in in Westbeth here in Greenwich Village. Um, So last supper, I've interpreted to refer to two things. One is that she did take barbiturate and slash her wrist. So it is a little bit like Christ saying, this is my body and this is my blood. And it's it's a kind of communion of wafer and wine. Also, At the Last Supper, Jesus also said one of those closest to him would betray him. And so I think she did feel betrayed by Marvin in various ways, but but primarily that he wasn't there for her. There are many things contributing to Deanne's depression, but I think that that note, Last Supper, suggests that the thing at the top of her mind was this sense of betrayal by Marvin. 
Deanne's work was instrumental in changing how we have recognized photography as an art form, something that we should understand at a more creatively complex level than merely the taking of a picture. Like everything, I think she was very ambivalent about her fame. She did want recognition, that's for sure. And she did get it after her suicide. The show at the Museum of Modern Art that was done as a, a memorial retrospective was incredibly well attended. I mean, people were lined up in the street to get in, and it was a huge phenomenon. There have been previous photographers, for sure, you know, people like Walker Evans, who'd had um, one-man exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, and others, Ansel Adams, who were um, revered. Arbus did a couple things. I mean, one uh, that, that had not been done before, perhaps. I mean, she reached a much wider audience because the pictures had a psychological power to them that made them riveting. So people who weren't otherwise interested in photography would be transfixed by these pictures and have powerful reactions to them. I mean, Walker Evans and Ansel Adams, they were great photographers, but but you don't have that immediacy of feeling that you do in front of an Arbus picture, which I argue is enhanced or in part created by the formal ingenuity and, and artistry that is also in those pictures. They almost sucker punch you. You, you, you don't expect... The more time you spend with them, the more you see in them. Other people can't take pictures like this because they don't have that complexity. John Sarkowski was the director of the, the photography department at Museum of Modern Art. He said after Deanne's death, when she suddenly became very famous, people would come in every week with pictures that they had taken of people up against the wall, thinking that they were, you know, these close-ups of people that they would be like Deanne Arbus, but they were not like Deanne's pictures. And people couldn't do that. It was her. So I think, yes, what happened very soon after her death, the art market for photography develops, and people now see these photographs as being art and being perhaps on the same level as painting and sculpture. A creative genius. Well, that wraps things up for this episode. A huge thanks to Arthur Lubau. For more on Deanne Arbus's life and work, Check out his book, Deanne Arbus, Portrait of a Photographer. Also, if you're interested in more information about the people we discuss in this series, you can check out my book, The Power of Different. And make sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz or at PersonologyMD. White it appeals to me What makes me feel as though Supper in my tea Because I won't be there alone You waiting there for me Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. Editing, music, and mixing by Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.